Hello, I'm James Foey. Joining me is Claire White. Hello. And this is Dragons, Sexy Robots and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. We are here to discuss new and old nerd creations, how they were made, and explore the roots of the characters and stories. Today, we are talking about Coraline. But before we do, we'd like to introduce you once again to our friends at the Sartorial Geek. Hi, I'm Jordan. And I'm Liz. And we run the Sartorial Geek. The Sartorial Geek is a community for the geek in all of us. Our podcast highlights nerdy fashion, pop culture, and cool stories by cool people. Check us out at Sartorial Geek everywhere on the internet and wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay nerdy! Coraline is the story of an 11-year-old girl who has moved to a new home in a new state. Things are rough. She is bored. Her parents don't pay attention to her, and she doesn't have any good friends yet. While exploring her new home, which is actually an old home, she comes across a secret hallway that leads to an alternate universe where her mother and father dote on her, and there are all kinds of wonderful entertainments. The only difference is that everyone has buttons for eyes. Maybe this alternate reality is too good to be true? Coraline was released in 2009, was directed by Henry Selleck, made by Leica Studios, and is based on the book by Neil Gaiman. I will be talking about the history of Coraline. Oh, no, you'll be talking about the history of Coraline. But apparently you wish you were. That's fine. (laughs) I'm going to leave it to you. And I'll be talking about the production and the making of Coraline. And we are pairing Coraline with our uh, Dracula episode. Yes, our last episode was about Bram Stoker's Dracula. So, James, do you want to take it away? Sure. My segment uh, will be about how Coraline is in the tradition of ogre coming-of-age stories, or rather, uh, (laughs) uh, coming-of-age stories for human children uh, that involve ogres. Okay, that makes sense. It's not ogres coming of age. (laughs) No, someday we'll do a podcast about that. Uh, So Hansel and Gretel is from Grimm's Fairy Tales, which was written in or published in 1812 in Germany. And as many of you may know from Kyle's history segment about fairy tales and how uh, Black Mirror is really a modern fairy tale, um, the Grimm's, the brothers Grimm, were going around collecting stories in Germany and compiling something like a national uh, folktale archive um, and making sure to write down things that had been told orally. Now, the story of Hansel and Gretel uh, was the first thing that I thought of when seeing Coraline. It's about two young children, a boy and a girl, whose parents are starving and attempt to lose their children in the woods so that they'll no longer have to feed their children and can just take care of themselves. I always thought they got lost in the woods. Oh, they didn't get lost. They got left. And they knew it was coming, which is why they tried to leave the breadcrumbs um, to get back home. Uh, First leaving stones, which were successful. Mom flies into a rage. Mom's the one that really convinced Dad to leave them. Um... Uh, And then they leave breadcrumbs because they're not allowed to go outside and collect stones because she's not going to let them use the same trick twice. And then birds eat the breadcrumbs. Even that little sequence is something that comes up in other fairy tales. And what comes up in many of them is children being abandoned by their parents so that the parents can take care of themselves and just feed themselves. 
Um, that is a part of many of these coming-of-age versus ogres stories. It starts with you being betrayed by your parents and then running into something like an ogre or a witch. Now, in Hansel and Gretel, it's a witch. They get lured by a beautiful candy house, and of course, the children are starving, so they start to eat it, and the witch invites them in, says, I'll give you all kinds of tasty things to eat, and a hot bath, and clothes, and they go in, and she attempts to fatten them up so that she can devour devour them. Spoiler, they trick her, kill her instead, and then what's really key and comes up in many of these stories, as I'll tell you some other fairy tales in brief um, that share this too, they go home and use what the, the treasures that they got from the witch's house to take care of their parents. That's really nice of them. It really is. Uh, so, um, by the way, um, something we should note uh, for Coraline, there is a connection that a lot of people draw between the witch dying and Hansel and Gretel get home. And their mom is also passed away. Now, the Grimm's brothers made Hansel and Gretel, they, they had it be her, their, the children's stepmother. But in the original version of the story, because the Grimm's brothers love to alter it for themselves, uh, it's the kid's biological mother. So they maybe killed the mom? Or, metaphorically, they're the same person. Right, the witch, that's what I mean. The witch yeah, and the yeah, mom yeah. are the same. Either person. literally or metaphorically, yeah. it is actually the same person. Um, so people think that this uh, story of starving children abandoned by their parents, forced to make it on their own, is the source of so many fairy tales because of the Great Famine, which occurred uh, between 1315 and 1317. At least that's the time period where the crops were failing. I think Kyle mentioned this, but. Um, some people think this was related to a volcanic eruption that happened in New Zealand. Right, yeah. Yes. I that, think Kyle did mention that. I think he did. And and what it did, what it's thought to have caused very cold, long-lasting winters and then cold, rainy summers that were terrible for the crops. The effects of this famine, whatever the cause, lasted until 1322. This crop failure was all across Europe, all the way down south and in, in southern Europe, east into Russia. And it led to not only a rising crime and bad behavior of desperate people, but cannibalism and infanticide and, yes, abandonment of your children to try to feed yourself. So it makes sense to me that people, if if a child were to make it out of that, if a child were to make it out of that situation, that is worthy of a story. Mm. That, that's like a little, like— And the people they might be running into probably look like ogres. Oh, yes, The worst people in the world would seek to take advantage of all these abandoned, hungry children who are desperate for food and comfort. Real-life ogres. So, just another little story um, that you might be interested in that that follows a similar theme. Uh, Hop of My Thumb is a story by Charles Perrault. He was a Frenchman who published his histories or tales from past times or Mother Goose, which is how I knew it as a kid. Yeah, that was published in 1697 in Paris. And that's about a a young man who, when he's first born, is about the size of a thumb. And him and like six brothers or seven brothers are abandoned by their family because it's too much to feed all of them. And they wind up seeking refuge in an ogre's home um, because it's that or the wolves. Um, And through the cunning of, uh, um, I believe it's Tom, 
um, the one who's the si- was born the size of the size of the thumb, the youngest, Tom smallest thumb. brother, Tom Thumb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because of the cunning of Tom Thumb, they're able to outwit and murder the ogre, um, and they also return home to take care of their parents using the magical items that they got from the ogre. Sounds like a fantasy. Like the horrible thing that you do actually turns out to be the best thing you could have done because your yeah. kids are so smart and they're going to take care of you. Maybe. Maybe, and also that there's got to be a moral there, and it's one, two wrongs don't make a right, you know? Mm. That however your parents treat you, this even though they owe more to you as your, their children, you still have your parental obligation, which is a, a crazy lesson when you think about people actually going through this and having to try to reconcile with their family or not. Yeah. Yeah, that might be the most fantastic element of it, not surviving the ogre and being abandoned, but... Reconciling with your family. Another story that came out actually in the same year in 1697 was Finette Syndrome, or Cunning Cinders. And I'm not going to try to pronounce the original French name of this tale, but it translates to Tales of Fairies. And it's by Madame Dunois. And actually, I I really ought to mention, I thought that the Grimm's brothers going around and writing all these uh, oral histories down was really this this big deal that was without precedent. (laughs) There was a lot of precedent, and, and they weren't just writing down tales that they got orally. Other people had written them down, and they were telling a new version. Mm. So um, fairy tales actually started— <laughs> They just had the best uh, publicist. Yeah, I guess. Or or when it was translated to English, it made more of an impact or there were mm. better and more available translations. Or they did it the best. Maybe, maybe. I will say that Charles Perrault, you know, uh, the guy who wrote Mother Goose, his version of Cinderella is the one that Disney adapted and is the most popular version— uh, Cinderella was also adapted by the Grimm's brothers in 1812. And funny thing, the Grimm's brothers, the brothers Grimm take that fairy tale, which apparently we could do, we should and could do a whole podcast on Cinderella. I learned a lot about Cinderella <laughs> doing this research um, because Finette Syndrome or Cunning Cinders by uh, Madame Dulnois is another Cinderella story. But Cinderella stories have existed all the way back into ancient Greece. Um, and the first European version of it that was written down was actually by an Italian man that I'll get to. But uh, fairy tales became popular as a written literature form first in Italy, in Europe. Oh. Yes. And then later um, became really popular in France. It was a thing that the middle and upper middle class and especially the aristocracy enjoyed regaling each other with fairy tales and reading published um, accounts of fairy tales. And this is, you know, a hundred some years before the Grimm's brothers in, in Germany decide to do the same thing and borrow from the French and retell it themselves. Another thing to note, Brothers Grimm, they made the ending of Cinderella less forgiving than it is in the other versions. Okay. The other versions that are older, like um, Charles Peralts or like uh, the Italian um, Giambattista Basile, uh, whose uh, Cenerentola was the first recorded European version of Cinderella, published posthumously in 1634, those all had the forgiveness that I was talking about in the other stories, mm. where you go through this terrible thing um, brought upon you by your evil stepmother or step or, or father or father and mother and then and your awful sisters, but then you take care of your sisters and your parents anyway. Cinderella is that good a person. It's only in the Brothers Grimm where the sisters have their eyes pecked out. Right. 
And their heels cut off. Yes, it's awful. But that's them. That's not mm, what core Cinderella is. German. Yeah, that's the yeah, that's the German version. So anyway, um, I want to just mention about Madame Dulnois. Really interesting woman. Uh, had a crazy life where you know she accused her husband of treason to get rid of him, and he accused her many lovers of treason to get rid of them. <laughs> and he managed to get rid of her lovers, at least for a time, but then also had to flee the country himself. And uh, she lived a life that there is no reputable account of how she spent the years uh, abroad. She said she was a French spy. Who knows what she did? But when she came back, she was very well-read, not didn't have a husband, had to take care of her children on her own, and did it in part by writing down these stories that she told to other upper-middle-class women in literary salons. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, really interesting woman. Once again, could do a whole podcast on her. She published Cunning Cinders in her Tales of Fairies in 1697, and she is the person, this woman is the one who came up with the name Fairy Tale. Mm. That's why we call it a fairy tale, because of her. And she's the one who took the Cinderella story and added an ogre. So it fits in with um, stories like Hansel and Gretel and uh, Hop of My Thumb. Now, I'm probably taking too much time, so I won't tell you her whole version, but just know that she makes sure to marry off her, her evil stepsisters to royalty as well. And she makes sure to take care of her parents. And she also manages to kill the ogre. She does everything, forgives everyone, takes care of everyone. Mm, do you think it was just a, like a popular trope by that point? Yes. I mean, Cinderella had been around for thousands of years, this rags-to-riches story. Oh, I mean like the ogre killing. Yes, yes. And, and I should mention that that's something from the Baltic region. Uh, countries that touch the Baltic Sea, like Germany, like Russia, like Estonia— um, they have a lot of ogre coming-of-age stories. Mm. Now, all of this is to give you a background that can help you see how Neil Gaiman took elements of older fairy tales and that long, long tradition of those kinds of stories about ogres and young heroines having to overcome them when separated from their parents uh, with the story that was from the Victorian era that more directly inspired Coraline. Mm -hmm. The Victorian-era fairy tale, The New Mother by Lucy Clifford, written in 1882, was the most direct inspiration for Coraline. Uh, the New Mother was a story published in Lucy Clifford's book, The Anyhow Stories, Moral and Otherwise, uh, in England. This is an English author. And she, like Madame Dulnois, uh, was a single mom of great education and wit and literary ability who was writing stories that she had told her children mm -hmm. um, and then having them published so that she could support those same children. I will say, though, that the Anyhow stories, moral and otherwise, are actually targeted towards children, whereas... Um, Frenchmen like Charles Perrault and French women like uh, Madame Dulnois were telling other elite gentlemen and ladies mm. these stories because peasant tales were in vogue. <laughs> right. I think the Grimm's fairy tales became adapted for children because they were so popular with children, but they weren't originally meant for them. Yes. Yes. Uh, in this case, in this Victorian era, this is for children and has a moral for children. 
So I will tell you the basic story and you'll see the similarities. Uh, <laughs> for those of you who watch Coraline or have already read or seen it. There are two children who are of some means who meet a beggar girl who has an instrument, some sort of stringed plucking sort of instrument, and she tells them that when she plays, if children are really naughty, a little man and woman come out of her instrument. Mm. And they get to, and the children get to see magic. And the children are like, well, we want to be naughty and see the magic. And she says, oh, I don't think you could be that naughty. They say, no, we can do it. We can do it. So they go home and they try to behave really badly. Mm-hmm. And they tell their mom while they're doing it. And she says, look, if you're going to behave that badly, I'm going to have to go away And you're going to get a new mother with glass eyes and a wooden tail. And they don't care. They're like, "Mm, that doesn't even sound real. And they go tell the beggar girl. They're like, mom says this is what's going to happen if we behave naughty. And she says, you know what? Wooden tails are probably too expensive, so nobody probably has them. (laughs) And the children are like, oh, you're right. So we're going to be really, really bad. Um, It escalates night after night until finally the children are bad enough that their mom does leave them. And then who should come to the door but an old woman with a thin, bony arm clutching a black bag with glinting eyes and a dull thumping and swishing sound from behind her. So the children flee the house. They don't even open the door. And they crawl back occasionally and look in the house that they used to live in and then run when they hear that tale and see the glint of the eyes. So in this story, in the Victorian era... The children separate from the parents because the children are bad and deserve it. (laughs) Even though the mom does still abandon them, but the children start it. Um, And also, I didn't mention this in the story, but um, they aren't technically children. It is the mother that does the abandoning, as in many of these fairy tales. Um, And the father is beloved and distant, which is another thing in Coraline, where mom is really running the show and we love dad, but... He's a party to whatever mother does, which is something from the older fairy tales, too. What's new is that the children are really at fault, um, that there is no reconciliation. There is no growth of the children that leads them to be able to take care of themselves. They just simply have to live in regret. And magic plays no part in the solution. In these older fairy tales, you encounter magic and it's awful and it's dangerous and it's trying to hurt you and it's trying to lure you in. But once you overcome it with your wits, Mm -hmm. you are able to use that magic not only to help yourself but to help the people that you love. In this Victorian tale, magic is only a problem. Desiring it is a problem from that beggar girl who you probably shouldn't associate with. Sounds very Christian. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and a lot of these folktales don't start out as Christian, but when people like the Brothers Grimm and other people get their hands on it, right. they start putting those ideas in yeah, there. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. So a um, little bit just about Coraline, which Neil Gaiman wrote in 2002. And you can see the mix of old and new in Neil Gaiman's story because we once again have distant parents, just like Lucy Clifford's tale, The New Mother. Um, we have a magic that's beautiful and dangerous, luring the children, just like in Lucy Clifford's. Um, and yet he does the older way, version of that story. Mm-hmm. You know, there is something like a hungry ogre, um, but this helps to facilitate growth in the heroine, you mm. know. And there is forgiveness. There is um, virtue helping the, the the family to come together. 
So that's that's him mixing old and new, and maybe you can have a better appreciation of all the things that go into it now. Yeah, I can see that. That's really cool. I'm going to kind of start where you stopped about Neil Gaiman please, writing this story. Please do. I love hearing about Neil Gaiman. So he, like you said, was writing this for his daughter, and he said he wanted to make a girl heroine and a story that was refreshingly creepy. And another piece of inspiration that you didn't mention was that it was the house that he used to live in as a kid. It was a big house that was divided into multiple units. So one of the doors opened to a brick wall. And he was always suspicious that one day the bricks would be gone and it would be a hallway. I would have thought the same thing as a kid. <laughs> I would have been sure. That, like, if I got it at the right time, there would be my passage. Mm -hmm. When he started writing, he thought the story would only be a few pages long. And he put it aside for a while, probably forgot about it. And then he said he realized that Holly, his daughter, was now in her teens and that her younger sister was now five, which gave him incentive to pick up the story again. He brought what he had to his agent, and she loved it and gave him a contract. So Gaiman then kept a notebook by his bed and for a year would write 50 to 100 words of the story a night. He said he got stuck writing American Gods, and that was when he was really able to put the work into Coraline when he had to take a break from American Gods. <laughs> oh, I imagine that was a relief. Yeah. And so when Neil Gaiman finished his first draft of Coraline, he had his agent send it to the director, Henry Selleck. Gaiman loved The Nightmare Before Christmas and knew that even though it was called Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas, the real master behind it was Henry Selleck, who had directed it. He also loved James and the Giant Peach, which Selleck also directed. And he thought that Selleck was the best stop-motion filmmaker in the business and loved that he understood sometimes bravery shines in dark places. So Gaiman was very adamant that if Coraline was going to be made into a movie, Selleck should direct it. Um, even when production was stalled, he stuck with Selleck, though he could have gone with other people who had the money to get it made right away. He was so passionate about Selleck that he didn't even make Selleck pay for the script. Just wanted him to do it. Yeah, I read that um, Selleck bought the rights before the thing was even published. I don't think he even bought them. I think they were just—he he, read the rough draft. He, yeah. He did, but then he couldn't get the movie together in time, and their option to have it lapsed. And they came to him hat in hand and were like, hey, we don't have the money, Mr. Gaiman, to buy it again. Could you just let us keep it anyway? And he said yes. Yeah, yeah. Henry Selleck was born in 1952 in Glen Ridge, New Jersey, drew a lot as a child and received a lot of attention for it. So much so that it overwhelmed him and he gave it up, I think, when he was around 11. Uh, so he could get out of the spotlight, he said. Um, eventually, he got back into art around age 20 when he saw a PBS program of experimental films. He studied science for a year at Rutgers, then switched colleges and majors to art at Syracuse University. Eventually, he went to CalArts for animation and went through the Disney character animation program. He worked for Disney on Pete's Dragon and became a full animator on The Fox and the Hound. This is where he met people like Tim Burton and Brad Bird, which we've talked about in other podcast episodes. He stepped away from Disney for a bit to do his own projects, uh, specifically stop-motion cell animated shorts uh, called Sea Page, which was very well-received. He started his own company, Selleck Productions, and worked for MTV, Pillsbury, and Ritzbits, doing a lot of commercials. He made Slow Bob and the Lower Dimension, uh, a short film which got Tim Burton's attention and put him on the map to direct Nightmare Before Christmas, which then led to James and the Giant Peach. So... 
backtracking to sell it getting Coraline. He loved it um, and saw the story as a modern dark fairy tale. Uh, He calls it Alice in Wonderland meets Grimm's fairy tales in a modern setting. Uh, He liked that Coraline was an ordinary girl who comes up against evil and wins. So he took the story to producer at Fox, uh, Bill Mechanic, who loved it. Um, He asked Neil and Bill to let him try and write it as a screenplay. Both agreed. Um, apparently, like you, we talked about, Neil just wanted him to do it anyway. He wrote several versions, and Neil actually encouraged him to not be so true to the book after the first draft. Um, he said it was very scary to show his scripts to Neil Gaiman because Neil Gaiman is such a good writer. <laughs> yeah, and can write scripts too. Yeah, he can do everything. But eventually Neil liked what he did. And here's the funny thing. Bill, the producer, had a deal with Disney where he wasn't allowed to make animated films. So they were going to make a live-action film. Um, They tried for a bit to get it made, but it became apparent they weren't going to get a scary film for kids made in Hollywood. So Selleck put Coraline aside and went on to work on Life Aquatic. Apparently he did the undersea creatures for it. Oh, I love those. (laughs) (laughs) Stop me if I call him Tom Selleck. It's Henry Selleck. Yes, yes, Henry Selleck. (laughs) Um, So now let's talk about the studio that produced Coraline Laika. I'm not going to go too into it because we do do a segment on them in our Kubo and the Two Strings episode, which they also made. Um, It started out as Will Vinton Studios and was known for its California Raisin commercials. In 1998, when it was on the verge of bankruptcy, Phil Knight, CEO of Nike, bought it and renamed it Leica for the 1950s dog Russia sent into space. He pumped millions of dollars into it and built a campus for it in South Portland. Now, you might be asking, why would the CEO of Nike buy an animation studio? I I am asking that. (laughs) Okay. He was convinced to buy it by his son, Travis Knight, who started there in an entry-level job and worked his way up to animator after an unsuccessful rap career. That's wonderful. Dad, can you save the company I work at? (laughs) Uh, Travis thought that even though the company had been mismanaged, there was something really special about it. Or can can you just put me in charge of the company? Um, Because both Travis and Phil clashed with Will Vinton, the studio's founder, and Vinton was eventually ousted in 2003. And then his son joined the board. You don't have a rich uh, dad. Get out of (laughs) here. When Knight bought the studio, their goal was to make classic films with something meaningful to say and uh, to make thought-provoking, emotionally resident, progressive work. In 2003, Laika asked Selig to do a short film, Moon Girl, for them. And he said he would only if they would produce Coraline with him. And they said, yep. But after Moon Girl and probably like evaluating what it would really take to make the movie, Laika said, never mind, the story's actually a little too dark. We're not going to do it. Selleck says that Travis Knight eventually got behind it. And I assume this is around Will Vin- when Will Vinton got forced out. And it was after uh, Knight got behind it that was when Laika committed to it. Um, they had the space and the talent to make it, but they still had to find a distributor. Travis Knight said he pitched Coraline to every major, semi-major, and independent studio. He thought they had it all. Neil Gaiman's best-selling novel, the director of from Nightmare Before Christmas, and some of the best artists in what he calls a groundbreaking process. He said he was super optimistic and that these were some of the responses he got from Hollywood. We're going to put that in one thing. Uh, Stop motion is not viable filmmaking medium. Everyone knows you can't have an animated film with a female protagonist unless she's a princess or a fairy, of course. Whoa. No boy is going to see a film with the girl's name in the title. No girl will see it either. The damn thing's too scary. Teens aren't interested in animation. 
Adults see animation as a babysitter. They don't want their kids to be challenged. Um, he said it was really upsetting, but eventually they connected with Focus Features, who, as, except for their latest, they worked with until then. Just a couple notes on the filmmaking process. Coraline was made with stop-motion animation, which is where you place a model by hand, take a picture, move it a little, and then take another picture. It took like a two and a half years to make Coraline, and they made two minutes of finished footage a week. Whenever I watch uh, Claymation, the first few minutes of any of those films is me being amazed that this thing exists. Eventually, I can forget that, but whenever it starts, I can't initially believe the thing got made. Oh, yeah. It's so much painstaking love and labor goes into it. Coraline was 90% practical effects, too, um, which means non-computer-generated effects. Um, Leica wanted to keep it as handmade as possible. As difficult as possible. Yes. <laughs> Old-school filmmaking funded by Nike. Yeah. Um, they did use some CG to help make the effects a little more seamless, um, mostly replacement face animation to make the faces more expressive. We've talked about this before, but apparently animating humans is very hard. Um, so they kind of used the computer to help that process along a little bit. The, um, they shot the movie digitally, which was um, instead of film, which was a first for Selleck. They also used 3D filming for the first time in a stop-motion animated film. And Kyle does a wonderful se uh, segment about CG animation in our Cubo and the Two Strings episode. So I do recommend going back and listening to that if you're interested in stop-motion animation. Um, Knight says that there were all kinds of technical challenges when filming Coraline, but the crew pushed through, and it's defined Leica ever since. Coraline did incredibly well. It did better than anyone's predictions for it. It got an Oscar nomination for Best Animated Feature, and it put Leica on the map. But despite their later films being very well-received overall, Leica has never achieved Coraline's success at the box office since. Um, Selleck left Leica after Coraline, and though his name has been attached to many projects, including ones at Pixar— um, he actually hasn't released his own work since Coraline. Um, and all of the reasons that I read for it not happening was due to budget and scheduling and time conflicts, that it was all taking longer than the producers wanted it to take. Um, as of now, he's attached to projects with both the Russo brothers and uh, Key and Peele. So that would be really cool if those do come to fruition. It would. It's so funny, the idea that people respect him. He's clearly very talented. He has these great critically successful things on his resume. But nobody wants to give him the money and the time that his projects make. They want yeah. to use his talents for their own. Well, especially if he's doing stop motion. I'm sure it's so much more expensive than any computer-generated um, piece that you could do if you're a company like Pixar or anything under Disney, you yeah. know? So that's my little segment. Well, I must say, as we get into the opinion segment, uh, I think claymation is perfect for the undercurrent of building menace. Yeah, Neil Gaiman thought that too. Yeah, that, that Coraline has. It makes sense. Claymation's great for this, for displaying something that is magical and fantastic, uh, but that is also scary. Yeah, claymation's a little bit unnerving. It is. It is. It can be fun and beautiful, but it is inherently unnerving. But and I wonder when, if that's because so much of the claymation that I've seen is uh, Henry Selleck's. No, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is scary. Like when you watch those old things in Frosty the Snowman, if there's any sense of danger at all, if there's any kind of bad creature at all in claymation, it looks more evil. 
And even good things look like you might not be able to trust them. There's something more uncanny about claymation. To me and the things I've seen, that's how I felt as a child, and I was reminded of that watching Coraline. Well, I don't know. Chicken Run is pretty light and fluffy, okay, and right. I was never freaked out by it. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. You're right. You're right. Um, we're getting into our opinion segments now, and hot take, Chicken Run is not scary <laughs> or disturbing. You know what the funny thing is that which in Wallace and Gromit, which one is Wallace? Is that the man? I think it is, yeah. The man is way more scary looking than the dog. I think it's because humans are so hard to do. Yes. And I was I was reminded of that or that connection was made for me when in your segment. Mm-hmm. So opinion uh, on Coraline, neither of us had seen it before. I, I James, you No, 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 you go. No, no, I was gonna ask, what did you think? Oh, uh it was Great. Um, and it makes all the sense in the world. Uh, one thing that, you know, I, I meant to mention with Neil Gaiman um, was that uh, Coraline won a Hugo Award. It won a Nebula Award. And I think it's important to point out in our opinion segment, it also won a Bram Stoker Award oh, for horror. Oh, hey, connection. Yeah, it is fantasy and it is horror, it's horror. all at the same time. And it makes sense because Kyle suggested we do Coraline even though he couldn't be here to do it. It makes sense that our horror fan suggested Coraline. Yes, and when we were asking for something to pair with Dracula and to do our, you know, spooky October connection that he picked that. And I think there's some interesting ways that they really connect even though oh, they don't yeah. both have vampires. I loved it, and I was engrossed in it the entire time, and there's this sense of dread throughout the whole thing. And it's interesting. I think it's Henry Selleck that said that adults see the movie as a horror story, whereas children see it as an adventure story. So interesting. Because to me, it was a horror story. I was terrified every time she went down that hallway into another world. Yes. Well, it's like you pointing out, which I hadn't thought and then is really awful to think about, humans as ogres— if you're telling the story of a child that was left on its own and was starving, all these stories that have people like this witch saying, oh, come into my house and I'll feed you, or these ogre, ogres that are saying the same thing, come into my house and I'll give you a bed, the kinds of adults that would have preyed on children during that great famine, um, we're aware that adults are like that. We're aware that people can say nice things to children because they have the worst intentions in the world. Children aren't as aware of that. Saying something to a child like stranger danger they still don't necessarily know and the full guess. consequences yeah. probably won't become hopefully won't become apparent until they're much older and can see it from an adult's perspective. Yeah. So an adult sees somebody cooking a hot meal for a kid and smiling at them and there's something a bit with off with buttons in their eyes. With buttons for eyes, it's not necessarily cute. It it there's a threat lurking there. Yeah. This is a strange adult with a child acting, you know. Anyway. Well, <laughs> what I wanted, anyway. So dark, so dark. What I wanted to point out, let's get to a lighter space. And In our horror so, show, yeah, yeah. Which was so interesting as far as connections between Dracula and Coraline was actually um, Eastern Europe and stories from Eastern Europe manifesting in Britain and just yes. the influence of it trickling in- through Europe and eventually getting to you know, being so prominent in Western literature. Yeah, that that Eastern folk tales. Yeah, and I think captured the British imagination in both cases in the Victorian era, even if they don't necessarily intend it to. Um, I think it's the idea of the unknown and like the mysticism of somewhere far away is partly the appeal of it. I mean, at least for Dracula. Yeah, I think it's also the idea, maybe from a British perspective, 
uh, that they were running into the modern age. They were embracing it. And mm. yet the rest of Europe hasn't left the past yet, perhaps. Mm. And there's the specter of the suffering that Europe had endured in, in the centuries prior and could it really be banished in this new modern age? And I think it was easy to take another culture's fears and have that represent the bad, more primal right. past of Europe. And those fears are, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like they're less Christian necessarily. Like it's pulling more from like pagan stories. Yes, yes. Yes, that's true. A lot of these monsters aren't a Christian sort of monster. They get tied into it. Right. No, but there's these pagan influences, and that's what the scary thing is. Yeah. I also, one of the connections that I drew, which I was surprised by, was that, um, you know, how much the uh, Great Famine played into the uh, folktale uh, culture of Europe. Um, and then thinking about when I was talking about Bram Stoker and his influences, that people think that his mother, having seen the potato famine, influenced um, him as a child, hearing these stories about people that were like the walking dead and sucking blood from corpses mm. and, may, and also resorting to cannibalism sometimes because that's what people do when they're starving, that those images of real horror in life and those stories being passed down lead to people building fantastical stories that are rooted there Yeah, well, in, I both, th in both cases. Yeah, I think it's really a thing of dealing with it, that this horrible thing happened. And so you tell stories of it in a way to just mentally deal with it. It's a thing where, like, kids – I mean, this might be similar – where kids, if something scares them, they'll then play that thing. Mm. You know? If – um. Like, my mom tells a story. I think it was, like, The Little Mermaid where I was very like, scared of the chef in Little Mermaid that was going to cook Sebastian. <laughs> and that, But, like, later, me and my friends were playing chef. Yeah. Well, Halloween is that, isn't it? All the kids dressing up as all the kinds of things that scare little kids. And yeah. adults doing it, too. Yeah. Um, one of the things that struck me that's very Victorian about it is that, as for both Dracula and Coraline is that magic is actually only a bad thing in yeah. this. I mean, not totally. Neil Gaiman brings in the thing where your adventures with magic help you to form new relationships, help you to reconcile, help you to grow as a person. There's a positive there, um, even if you're not necessarily... Not, not to do too much spoilers for Coraline, but it has that older fairy tale take on magic where it's dangerous but also can be a boon. Um but it's based on a Victorian story where magic is only bad. Yeah. In The New Mother, the children wanting to see magic is something that leads to them behaving badly. And the magical entity that shows up is only horrible. And in Dracula, it's the same thing. And Dracula is also based on fairy, Irish fairy stories and uh, Romanian uh, monster stories where to interact with them, there's no good thing to be gained from blood-sucking uh, yeah. fairies. I mentioned this earlier, but to me, it's so Christian. Like, it's so that this pagan magic is bad. And whether that was intentional or not, that were those were the ideas, like, permeating in the Victorian era, era for sure. Yes, you know? that has to be a part of that moral. Like, if it's not Christian, it's, you know, a Christian belief that's evil. Yeah. And can lead you to temptation. Yeah, where magic is a thing of the devil. Mm -hmm. And it might be enticing, it might be alluring, but it comes from one place and it's not heaven. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, both, I mean, because um, 
I almost said Tom Selleck, not Tom Selleck. Nope. Henry. <laughs> Henry Selleck. Actually, it's Neil Gaiman. So it's, I don't know. I just want to talk about Tom Selleck. But because uh, Neil Gaiman is kind of basing this story off a Victorian story, and then obviously Dracula is uh, Victorian, it just makes sense that those ideals would be so in there. Yeah. We're, it, it, it's a shared DNA, which is what we're all about here at uh, Dragon Sexy Robots and Adventures. Um, one of the other things that, that I noticed between the two stories is that you have characters that in the fairy tales I was talking about, not the new mother, but in the earlier fairy tales that the new mother was was um, being influenced by, you have people who are up against magic and all they have are their wits. Mm. You know, that's all you have, your quick thinking, your virtue, that's the only thing going for you. But like in Dracula, like in those fairy tales and also in Dracula, the end solution isn't just your wits. It's a primal, visceral, violent solution, you know, that's out of that older medieval era. That was something that was pointed out in Dracula by critics at the time that like, hey, you set this in this modern place, but the people's solutions to their problems are medieval. Like they're facing, <laughs> they're facing a threat that represents the old way of doing things and how horrible that mm -hmm. is, the fear of the past and that it could become the present again. And yet the way they bury the past is with the past's own methods. And uh, those fairy tales have that, too, where it's wits, but at the end, it's also violence. We can never get away from our baser selves. Yeah. Maybe. 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 Even Coraline, it's mostly thinking, but at the end, there has to be some physical violence, too. And I do like that about Coraline. I like that she's a normal girl. I like that she's not a chosen one. You know, there's nothing particularly amazing about her. And she just has this adventure, and she is resourceful, and she is smart. Yeah. And I really, I love— And that's valued. Yeah. It is. It is. That that's what's great about her. Yeah. And she's brave. Yeah. She's brave like a fairy tale heroine of old. Um, but she's up against Victorian magic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Neil Gaiman does a great job of, of softening both of those perspectives for a modern tale. Thank you all so much for listening. Once again, I'm James Foey. And I'm Claire White. And we are Dragons, Sexy Robots and Adventures, a nerd manual. Feel free to contact us on our website at dsrapodcast.com. We would love it if you could rate and review us on iTunes. You can find the show on social medias at DSRA Podcast. I can be found on Twitter at James Foey Jr. That's F-O-U-H-E-Y-J-R. I can be found at Along With Claire. That's C-L-A-I-R-E. And you can find our other host, Kyle Willoughby, at Klex303. That's K-L-E-X-303. You can learn more about Coraline and many of our other shows on our Facebook page. I'm the producer, James Foey. Our logo is done by Patty Highland, who, if you need a heroine who's going to use her wits, but then at the end of the fairy tale isn't afraid to go medieval on somebody, you go to Patty Highland. Our theme song was composed by Pete Rowan, a man who could very easily be lured by sweet treats from a witch and would definitely go into a small home made of them. <laughs> Once again, this is Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. Thanks for listening, and we will see you in two weeks. <laughs>